0: Hello and welcome to the podcast Trauma Resonance Resilience Podcast and it is so good to have you here we are on YouTube and we're also wherever you listen to podcasts and today I'm having one of my favorite guests cuz he's been here before and um we're going to have a conversation that I hope you are going to love about childhood adversity and criminal justice so without further ado let me have a warm welcome from everyone for andy briley hello great (laughs) to be here lisa it's fantastic to have you here. It really is. And for those of you who are watching, you'll note that I'm using something called immersive, which means that we are both sat um, next to each other, except, of course, we're not. Um, but for video purposes, we are, which is quite unnerving. Do you like the screen when it's like that? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it's, uh,
0: it's unusual. It, it feels a bit different. I'm sure we can absolutely run with it. It's quite strange, isn't it? Anyway, listen, Andy, I think before we kick off, what we need to do really is locate ourselves professionally, academically and personally in this discussion. Why we feel equipped to have this discussion, I think is important because it's quite nuanced really when you're thinking about childhood adversity and criminal justice. So Andy, do you want to do you want to start?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, So at the moment, I am a university teacher um, and I am currently teaching police officers on the Unlocked Programme for Leeds Trinity University. So it's a postgraduate master's um, and I've been doing that since September. So it's a relatively new position for me. Um, Prior to that, I have had 15 years working in the youth justice system and towards the end of, of Um, My end, if you want, and my transition into academia, um, that was predominantly working with looked-after children and care leavers that entered the youth justice system in Leeds. Um, So that required me to do various strands, really, some strategic stuff, some multi-agency working, some training, and some direct work with children looked after and getting them involved in decision-making processes. So it was quite an interesting role, really, because it was quite varied. Um, And I have written two books around youth crime and trauma and um, identity formation and mainly that is derived because I've got a dual perspective of the criminal justice system because prior to my 15-year youth justice career I spent several years in the criminal justice system, four of which were in the prison system um, and on license to probation etc. So a bit of an unusual way into my uh, professional career And prior to that, I experienced various childhood adversities, um, which included the care experience and and being raised by a a mother who also experienced abuse and neglect in the care system herself. Um, So I guess that just gives me an interesting take on the topic that we're going to discuss, I guess.
0: Absolutely. Um, And for me, so I'm fairly new into um, working around criminal justice. I started doing some work. in my capacity as someone who trains, speaks and writes about trauma, recovery and resilience. Um, I started doing a piece of work with probation back in 2018 and have continued to work with violence reduction units, system change and other probation services. Uh, Prior to that, my work would have been I would have previously been involved in criminal justice on behalf of young people that I was working with who were uh, coming out of care. And prior to that, uh, like yourself, I have um lived experience of the care system and it's you know I always think there's a couple of things that are really difficult to uh not have been around certainly in 80s care and one of those is abuse and the other one is um Criminal activity uh, and the criminalization actually of young people in the care system is something that still continues to be of concern. So that sort of uh, locates um, me academically, doing my uh, PhD, which I'm doing now on care, school exclusion, and belonging. Uh, the relationship between exclusion and care and criminal justice has come up a, a huge amount in my studies so it's it's something that i'm very much around and something that i've certainly been around for a long time but it's your particular take on it that i find really interesting and i think what stimulated this um conversation if you like was a, t- a kind of twitter conversation that were happening around some of the I guess misunderstandings, misrepresentation, um, Twitter doesn't lend itself to nuance. We know this. But something that comes up over and over again is that somehow by thinking about childhood trauma and adversity, we are removing the opportunity for someone to take responsibility for what they did. This is something that I see over and over again. So I wonder if that's a good place for us to start.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. I was involved in that parts of those conversations, I suppose, over the weekend. And, um, yeah, I mean, my my starting point is that sometimes I wonder how much people understand the mechanisms of the criminal justice system when we start to have conversations about um, the profile, if you like, of the people that enter the criminal justice system um, where they come from, what their experiences are, and, and more, but more importantly, how to intervene to make sure that they do not go on um, to re-offend or, or, or create more victims, which in the grand scheme of things, we're not particularly great at in the, U, in, 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 in the UK uh, in terms of our re-offending rates in comparison to our European neighbours, for example. So the the last thing I'm going to do is sit here and say that the criminal justice system gets um, get this right but I think, and I've outlined in a, in a, in a bit of a... Because I want to... Rather than getting caught up in the conversations where you can only write so much in a tweet, and, and so I've, I just thought I'd just put a little short video out. And and what, one of the things that I wanted to have the conversation around is that this conversation is quite a nuanced and complicated conversation. And I think if we start having it by drawing people on either side of the debate, I think that, that can be incredibly unhelpful. Um, because... It, I mean, most of the research that's that's come around, say, for example, the Good Lives model that was derived from Tony Ward um, and Ruth Mann, et cetera, and and, and contributes towards the assistance literature um, from Maruna and others, it's that actually holding people to account or making them responsible for their behaviour doesn't automatically mean that they're not going to re offend anyway. Um, What the literature stipulates is that actually moving people from A profile where they believe that they are an offender or that they are a criminal into moving them into a space where they don't identify as an offender or a criminal means that they're less likely then to go on and um, re offend in the future, right? So, my take on that is having had my own experiences of being in the criminal justice system and the prison system is that that is a very individual experience, it's an individual journey. And so the the kind of processes behind the criminal justice interventions, if you like, are APIS, so Assessment, Plan, Intervention, Supervision. And so if we do an assessment as a qualified practitioner within the criminal justice system, and you identify through your um, assessment skills that somebody's um, childhood experiences, whether that be traumatic experiences, it might not be. It might be that they grew up with a father who, involved in criminality but it didn't involve um, them being traumatized for example but the question is did that shape that young person or that adult's identity and if it does shape the identity the desistance literature stipulates that that is can influence the behavior of somebody and that's what we need to be changing so I think it's it's a bit of a no-brainer conversation to be honest it just depends on the individual's history and context and the intervention is dictated to by that assessment. If it's about childhood trauma, fair enough. If it's about identity formation, fair enough. If it's about substance misuse, fair enough. It might be about lack of educational attainment. It might be a multitude of all these different factors. And that is only found in the intervention, and, uh, in the assessment, sorry. And then that will be out, uh, uh, provide an output in terms of an intervention plan. So the conversation saying that we're taking away people's responsibility towards the crime about having a conversation about adverse childhood experience and childhood trauma in the criminal justice system, I think is a bit of a mute point because the, the, the fact that they're in the criminal justice system means they're being held to account. The mm-hmm. question is, what does that intervention form look like to make sure that they don't go on to commit more crimes? And for some people, that is about childhood experience and childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. And, this it. And, and for other people, From what I've experienced, um, it's not always. Some people have not had those experiences and commit crime. And their intervention plan needs to look very different to somebody that has.
0: So by not having, I mean, I'm with you. I just think it doesn't make any sense for me that we even have this kind of dichotomy. Um, But actually, there's something really irresponsible about not thinking about childhood trauma because then we're not engaged in the conversation about prevention, whether that's prevention for crimes yet to be committed or prevention of crimes that may be committed again by that same person.
1: And so, I mean, I've just laid out the criminal justice context in terms of individualising interventions for a person that enters the criminal justice system for their criminal behaviour. But then there's a broader context. And actually, you, I think you tagged me in the research that the longitudinal study that was done um, in Scotland. And it was interesting, I mean, so let's take a step back actually and think about, so Bessel van der Kolk, you know, he's a leading expert in PTSD and, and, and in his work, he identifies three factors that you see in individuals as they grow, if they've got unresolved um, symptoms of uh, tra- childhood trauma, and those are attention relationships, and affect regulation. And so all of those things are prevalent within the prison population, right? So then what we need to think about is at population level, like you've just outlined there, what do communities need to look like to ensure that children growing up in those communities are not exposed to community factors that mean that they're more likely to enter the criminal justice system? So I mean... (laughs) I mean, me and you are often on the same page, but I think if, if, so, whichever conversation we're having, whether we're having a conversation that responds in a criminal justice context, we need to have trauma and adversity in that conversation. But if we want to re- pre- take a preventative approach to community through violence reduction, for example, trauma and adversity also needs to be a part of that conversation. It doesn't need to be an either or or black and white. You don't need to sit on either side of the fence. We can have a nuanced conversation about holding people to account because people need to be held to account. I know that most more than most. Um, But while you're being held to account, what does that intervention plan look like to make sure that you can access the social norms that you need to access, that I've now accessed, that means that I'm incredibly less likely to go on and offend And that is what the desistance literature stipulates, that actually what we need is pro-social people. And there's not a right lot of evidence that suggests that longer prison sentences or harsher sentences or more punitive approaches actually reduce crime actually um so we can't ignore that people need to be held to account i'm absolutely for that i've worked in the youth justice system i've worked with people that commit absolutely horrendous crimes that i've not even understood myself why they've done that but there's a focus on the intervention while they're coming through the criminal justice system that means that they become more robust human beings when they leave that intervention or when they leave the prison system and I just don't understand why trauma or childhood adversity can't be a part of that conversation for those people that need
0: that intervention. Mm. I mean to me we're dealing with the right for public safety, we're thinking about personal responsibility And we're also thinking about healing or an intervention or an acknowledgement or a way of working with someone that acknowledges and understands um, their childhood trauma. I mean, you've said that, you know, where that's relevant. And it's interesting because I've never spoken to somebody um, who's been in prison, for example, because obviously not all people who offend end up in prison, but who's been in prison, who doesn't have a a childhood adversity or trauma story. I I just, there's always something. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people who don't have that, but I I wonder, for me, there's something about um, the public's readiness to have a conversation that moves away from the idea that people are evil or people are bad, um, that helps people, as you say, understand, embrace and hold the idea that there are factors at play that, that create certain circumstances, that create certain types of people who do things and that we need to think about those in much the same way as we know that people who have access to really good education, they live in really safe housing, they have a lot of family members around them, they have people in their lives who can um, get them started in different work, different jobs, Um, there's a lot of people available to them as a network. We know that those people Generally speaking, are people who are going to respond very well um, in life and be able to meet certain um socially acceptable achievements. Uh, in the same way, why is it very difficult, do you think, for people to understand that poor housing? Um, and I guess it's the causation correlation argument, isn't it? It's this it's this idea that somehow by looking at a population and asking them to reflect back or reflecting back with them um, and finding childhood adversity and trauma, that somehow we're saying that all people who have those who have adversity and childhood trauma are going to end up in the prison system. And I'm not quite sure how you move people away from that thinking because clearly that isn't the case. You know, evidently, um, it isn't the case that, for example, I think the example you gave in your video was some, I mean, some prison populations, about 40% have been in care. That doesn't mean 40% of people who've been in care are going to go to prison. Um, and I'm not sure how how to have that conversation, if it's really difficult for people to grasp. I mean, what what kind of ideas do you have about helping people understand the difference between causation and correlation in that way
1: I, I I mean for me I find it so we know that according to the ministry of justice in a report that they did in 2016 46 percent of people in our adult prison population were permanently excluded from school okay so that that that's not a causation so so somebody getting excluded from school it, you know or, or not getting high academic attainment is not a causation for offending. But, but we're not seeing the same conversation had around highlighting that, which yeah. tells me there's something going on around childhood trauma and adversity for people personally, because I don't think, I don't know anybody who's ever argued that we shouldn't be educating prisoners when they're in prison, but it's not a causal factor, but nobody's got a problem with it. So there's something going on around childhood trauma and adversity that mean that for some reason, this is a different issue. In, in in many ways, it's the same. It's the same conversation around um, around Black Asian minority and ethnic groups, right? So there's a disproportionality of people in the criminal justice system that come from that group, um, as highlighted by Laming in 2016. Uh, Lamy in 2016, but nobody's got an issue. We're not. Nobody's got an issue with saying that, that being of a minority group is a causal factor for offending. So the point I'm making is there's something interesting, I think, happening around trauma and adversity that mean that just because we're having the conversation, just because we need to have the conversation in the criminal justice system about exclusion doesn't mean we're saying it's a causal factor. Just because we're saying we need to have a conversation about minority groups, we're not saying it's a causal factor. Just because we're saying we need to have a conversation about the lack of educational attainment for people that enter the criminal justice system doesn't mean we, we're saying it's a causal factor. So so, it's interesting, isn't it, that for this particular thing, it's stimulating people's thoughts, which in many ways is really good. Um, as long as we're having the conversation in a balanced way, and we're talking about it being a correlating factor, for some people that enter the criminal justice system, and for those individuals, and I put myself in that, um, you know, I've done a lot of, in-depth reflection um in writing particularly in my first book which was an autobiography um and and that was a really good and we know this through through lots of um research anyway that writing is really therapeutic for people and can help people Mm -hmm. and so and I did that writing my first book and, and and it helped me connect what I felt was um correlating factors so so I was at abused systematically and went in the care system but but for about two years but interesting that wasn't actually a contributing factor to to my offending behavior really when i did my in-depth reflection it was more about the consistent exposure to people involved in offending and drug use and then that fueling my kind of self-perception about who were my kind of people as i were growing up who were my relationships And because I gravitated towards people that were not particularly productive for me, it increased the likelihood that I was going to get involved in those type of behaviours and um, became addicted to heroin. And that then was the biggest driver behind my offending behaviour, really. So you could almost take this interesting journey backwards and say that actually my childhood trauma, if you like, my childhood adversities were... um, Contributing factors that led to other things. And then in this mixed bag of, of human life, I think you say lots of times that the, the complexities of human life, that, that then led to some of my problematic behaviours. Um, and, and for me, I mean, I, I always think a, a micro example of this could be when I, first, when I was in Prince of the Gym Offenders Institution as a, as a boy, as, a, as a, young, a young person, I remember being in a, a holding room very early on with my brother and my mum had come to visit us. And i and, and I'll never forget this. It was a 15-year-old boy from Birmingham. And he was, after his visit, he was squatting in, the, in a holding cell because he'd just plugged drugs, right? I just wanted you to hold this thought for a minute. Right? This is a 15-year-old boy. And I was a bit mesmerised and thinking, you know, what's he doing over there with his pants down squatting in the corner? And so I looked over there, but I was from Leeds and nobody knew me. And so he told me to basically, I won't repeat what he said, but he basically told me to look away. And he had obviously several young people around him. Now, that behaviour is problematic. And he, but somebody dropped them drugs off to this 15-year-old boy. And then in this institution, he's then pulling them out of his bum to share them with other people in that, in that situation. I'm not sharing this story to, to, to make people feel uncomfortable, but this is the lived reality of, of of what we're talking about when we're incarcerating people. That I'm sure that young person. I mean, what life does a does a 15 year old boy have
0: to get to 15 and be behaving in that way? Can um, I just say, children? Yes, yeah, incarcerating people, but let's have it right: incarcerating children. And your question is, what kind of life did he have to get? to that point as a 15-year-old. And what I would ask you, Andy, in your reflections, why was that helpful for you? And I love that going backwards. There's a great book. I don't know if you've read it called Stuart, A Life Backwards. No, I haven't read it. Very good. You love it. Um I wish I would have done mine that way actually. <laughs> yeah. Well in your reflections, Andy, I suppose what I want to ask you uh, for 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 people to to hear really is why was that helpful? For you to have those reflections and start to make connections about your your lived experiences, your behaviour, your actions, the things that you did, making links with your childhood traumas and adversity of which you had many. Why was that helpful for you?
1: See, the thing is, it helped me contextualise my behaviour, and and in the absence of that, I didn't really know how to resolve it. And this is my this is. Where I'm at with, with how I've always worked with young people is that in some ways, if we're going to ask them to change behavior, we have to help them contextualize that behavior. It really is that simple. And actually, when we look at the work of Maruna and Neil and assistance literature, what they're saying is actually, if you, the people that have a positive identity and are able to psychologically make sense of the behaviour, I'm more likely to move on from it. So if people are trapped, um, for me, a trauma-informed approach is working with individuals to help them dig deep within themselves, reflect within themselves. Some people might think shaming is helpful. I, I just don't believe that. I think that, you know, actually, if you can help people contextualise their behaviour, you can help them get a better sense of self help them understand their behaviour, even if it isn't about trauma, but it's about the way that they're behaving and their behaviour comes from whatever uh, factors are behind that behaviour. You can help them recognise that that is something that, that happened then, and that actually they, as human beings, can be more productive members of society and can move forward. And my my reflections helped me do that. It helped me psychologically Disassociate to some degree, and help me understand the context behind my behaviour. And once I understand the context, it was like a, and that happens as a part of maturation as well. Because most people, as that longitudinal study in Scotland highlight, they come into contact with the youth justice system, actually go out of offending by the age of twenty-five. Most, um, interestingly enough, that's when the, the, the kind of cognition of brain construction. Is fully developed, which I find interesting as well. Mm. But it, it, that reflection just helps me understand, actually, not excuse my behaviour. And I think that I have to be clear about that. It's not about excusing behaviour, but it's about thinking, OK, if that happened, because life is messy, if that happened, that then meant that I was more likely to spend time with that person over there. And if I'm most likely to spend time with that person up there, then the two of us coming together won't particularly help. All that does is help me identify that actually maybe I need to spend time with a different person, which means that I'm not likely to get involved in that behaviour again. So I think reflection is absolutely essential. In fact, sometimes people say to me, what made you change? And I think that's an interesting framing of the question actually because I don't believe I did change. I just believe I didn't give up. But in the end, you know, it's reflection that helped me sit, analyse myself, contextualise my behaviour, and once I was contextualised it, it meant that I was unlikely to do it again in the future. But, but, but going back to the but, you know, when I went to the British of Offenders Institution, you know, I've got a bit of insight now and a bit of knowledge and, and, and practice experience as well as a few more years and a bit less hair. But I, I, I know beyond a reasonable doubt that those, the vast majority of violence that I've seen in that young Offenders Institution is because those kids, the majority of them, could not regulate and deal with stressful situations and yet they were placed in some of the most stressful situations children can be placed in. And that's a, a chemistry for disaster. So it doesn't mean that you justify some of them. I mean, they were a lot of them in Birmingham at that time were in very, very serious and violent crimes, sometimes murder. And um, So the last thing you want to do is fall into a trap of saying, well, you know, you committed murder because you experienced trauma because that's not true. But if an individual has committed murder and is in prison at 15 years old, it's important to contextualise that baby behaviour, get them to reflect on why they've ended up in that position at 15 years old so that when they are released
0: eventually they are a safer member of a community than when they enter prison. And I guess that's the beauty of working with young people is there is, you know that you've got a window of opportunity to try and prevent adults going into relationships having children going into public spaces and carrying some of that violence that you saw as a young person into adulthood and everything that goes goes with that um what what are your thoughts about adults and violence and how we how we think about that I mean as I said earlier I'm doing work with a number of violence reduction units which you know they the work that they do goes into every aspect of an area you know they're looking at uh, policing they're looking at education they're looking at housing they're looking at all of those aspects but how do we think about that in the context of some of the conversations that came up um, on Twitter around violence particularly
1: I mean it, it's a difficult con- it's a difficult response for that question Lisa because I think it, it, in some ways it's, it goes back to what we're saying about individual and community and I think there's a philosophical conversation to have about um I do have I, I expressed in connecting with people in trouble um, that I do Worry sometimes um, that we are framing a conversation around child criminal exploitation, which means that we are saving children from groomers and exploiters and, and gang county lines. And I think that that's absolutely right to have that conversation because, as we know, the data is unfolding right in front of us but that that is the case. But I think we could also, if we if our response is too authoritative. To communities that are already fighting inequality and poverty and marginalization, racism, for example. The narrative might 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 cause more harm than good, actually. Um, because I've like worked in secure settings as well before um I left Youth Justice and came into academia. And for example, um I met two 16-year-old boys, one from Middlesbrough, one from London, who were um, both actually secured on welfare grounds, for being involved in offences. Oh well, they weren't offences actually. They've not been convicted. So they were secured under this Section 25 of the Children's Act, which means that you can restrict liberty from a, a child if they're looked after uh, for their safety or the safety of others. Um, and their take on it, on what had happened to them, was quite interesting actually. Because as far as they was concerned, they'd been kidnapped by the state. Um, and again something in there about legitimacy and if we as authority police courts um social care you know early help authority figures in terms of you know kind of agencies that work with some of these marginalized com- communities if the children don't perceive us in the right way and we're going in and we're incarcerating them on welfare grounds whatever in some of their relationships I, I do have a worry what is the long-term implication for some of those children um which highlights the problem, actually, because if we go back to 1999, when I was in that, in that holding area with that 15-year-old boy, he would, would have been probably exposed to lots of community harms. Um, and we're identifying that now and responding to it in a very different way than we did when I was a kid, because I was just arrested and put in prison, even though I was wanted to, to sell drugs. So that was a very long-winded response to say it's a difficult one. we've got to get it right on an individual level, but I don't think we can, we shouldn't be demonising adults in these these communities. I think we need to hold on to the fact that some of these adults were once the vulnerable children. And so we need to think more community interventions and we need to bring people together and challenge the inequality and the poverty and the, the social harms that these individual communities are experiencing. Because in the end, You mention this all the time. People need people. We are interconnected. Children can't survive if they're just dependent on authorities. They've got to grow up in communities and villages that can keep them safe. So I think we've got to work alongside these communities in a a different way rather than individualising interventions and saving children from the adults in the community. We've got to think about working with the communities as a whole. I, I love that answer. That I I'll love that it. answer.
0: <laughs> I love that answer so much because because it's right. Either we're all working on this together. You know, children were once adu- uh, will become adults, and adults were once children. I say that all the time, and we have to understand that those adults were once children, and those adults are having children, and you know, dividing services up is 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 not satisfactory we have to be working in a community response and that's one of the reasons why i do like the work of the viu and the way that they approach things but i just wanted to come back to the reflections you had about yourself and i kind of want to do a little bit of a deep dive if you'll allow me and we won't go there for too long because it's per- it's your personal space but i suppose what i would like to ask you are a couple of things and one of them is how did you feel about yourself before you understood what the context was for you doing things that you may not have been happy that you did. I mean, I was disconnected.
1: I was disconnected from myself. That was the driver behind my substance abuse problems. Um, and this is the thing when we talk about prisoners as well, we have to understand that we are not an apogenous group. So my interestingly, it took until my fourth prison sentence for me to get an intervention explored my substance misuse problems when all of the reasons I were incarcerated were for offenses that happened uh, under the influence of, of either heroin or or, or alcohol. So I I mean, I, again, it was more than just reflecting on my extended behaviour. So even like reflecting on my relationships, I always felt, and this is the thing about vulnerability and about being a man, um, is that I didn't know how my childhood had impacted on my ability to hold and sustain a relationship with a woman. And because of masculinity and because of the environments I've grown up in, I was told that actually that's okay because I'm just a flyer. So i would literally convinced myself that actually not only was it not problematic, but it was almost positive. The fact that I could go and get into relationships and not hold or sustain them for any period of time. Um, I almost convinced myself that that was, that was something positive, a positive trait about myself. But when I was able to do my reflections and understand that actually the deep down the reason why I I thought I didn't value women, but actually I realised I didn't value myself, mm-hmm. and because I didn't value myself, I didn't want anybody getting close enough to see that actually I wasn't worth caring for. Um, so it's not you know that's what I mean. The, the offending is just an ice tip of the iceberg of making people a more rounded human being if we focus on the offending we're kind of losing something actually the human context the compassion itself so Gabba Mate talks about um you know trauma not what it's not what happens to us but it's what happens inside of us as a result of what happens to us and I think somewhere along that childhood that I had and the prison experience and the drug addiction I just lost connection with myself and, and through my reflections, I was able to find who I was and, and, and reconnect with myself. And now you know, I'm married with a, um, a beautiful little daughter and that's only able, been able to happen because I reconnected with myself. And I think that is what the criminal justice system is at the moment or always has done. He struggled with because it has got to hold people to account. People have got to be accountable for their behavior when they victimize people. But if the reason that they're doing that is because they're disconnected from themselves, incarcerating them and isolating them is not likely to help them to do that reconnection. And so that's a criminal justice system dichotomy, if you like, it's a problem. But I think it's only a problem if people stop breathing down the criminal justice system's neck and stop with this narrative about we don't need to excuse behaviours. If the people are in the criminal justice system, they're being held to work out. If they're in prison, for example, they're being held to account. If anybody, look, I've been in prison for years. You know, the experience itself is degrading, it's demoralising, it's dehumanising and it's disconnecting, right? But I'm in a really privileged position to be teaching prison officers at the because I'm not going to stop teaching them. You need to, it's, it's you that will make the prison system incarcerate people, but it's you that will help people connect with themselves. It's your approach that will mean that they'll become more relational when they leave prison than once when they entered. It's not the prison system. That's what makes people accountable. So I personally think that, you know, my personal reflections has helped me reconnect with myself, not just addressing the offending behaviour, but making me a more robust, honest and active member of my community. And that happens through relational connections with other people to help you take that reflective journey.
0: Andy, you are a gift to the world and it has been talking, talking to you. <laughs> I have loved talking to you and people who don't know this, but I call you brother and um, I did I did want to have, um, he ain't heavy, he's my brother playing, but I didn't want to breach any copyright issues. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that. But listen, thank you so much and um, you have yourself a lovely evening.
1: You too. Thank you, sister. We are family.